Okay. As usual, trying to make sure Facebook and YouTube are up and going. As usual, trying to make sure Facebook and YouTube are up and going. As usual, trying to make sure Facebook and YouTube are up and going. Okay, Gigi, I mean, I might need you to uh, mute and make sure that uh, you might have to put in your earphones. Okay, I think I got it straight. All right, cool. Okay, we're going to let people come in. Got 29 so far. Hope everybody's well. Go ahead and hit the like button as you come in. Share, subscribe if you will. All right. Shout out to my boy Jay who said he's doing all right. Glad to hear that. Uh, Rashid, Adam, what's going on? Yeah, you know I had to get him. I had to get Gigi in here. Stack Mo, what's the word? Malika, what's happening, man? TD Hip Hop, what's going on? Much appreciation. I'll come in and support the show. Share and subscribe. We up to 38. We're going to get it going. Uh, going to have a couple of good brothers in here today, breaking some stuff down. And this is the third in our three-part series on intimate partner violence, right? So the first one we dealt with, we had a attorney, Dennis Sperling, come in and give some uh, epic advice to brothers that need to hear it on how to, to, to practically navigate dealing with uh, intimate partner violence. Then we had uh, the good brother, Dr. Tommy Curry, come in. And not only did he share with us his work, his most recent work, um, really deconstructing intersectionality, but also uh, decolonizing intimate partner violence and paternity fraud and talking a little bit about how we got to where we are, uh, not only in terms of theory, but in terms of how that theory has been used. So that was yesterday. Dennis Sperling was Wednesday. And today we are going to be uh, joined by the G with the PhD, Green Gorilla, and uh, Dr. Ronald Neal, who will be adding in a little bit later. And we're going to be looking at uh, intimate partner violence, religion and philosophy, and also dealing with some other points of relevance. So um, I hope you all enjoy that. Um, West Coast, what's going on? Paul, Shalom. Uh, Marvin, what's the word? Got Lawrence in here. Good to see you, man. Uh, MLR. All right. Good to see you, man. Christopher. That's right. So we're getting up in here. 50. Um, watching as we climb. Get it going a little bit. So y'all know how I like to do. I tend to start off with some current events, and there are quite a few uh, that I'm going to draw some attention to real quick. Uh, some current news reports that I think merit a little bit of attention. So here we go. Okay, it doesn't like that. Hmm. 
All right. All right. Father's time, how you doing? All right. So first up, this is breaking news in the last hour. A Georgia State trooper charged with murder and shooting of a black man, right? This uh, Apparently he was fired, but he was charged with murder on Friday after he shot a black man who attempted to flee a traffic stop a week ago. Uh, Jacob Gordon Thompson, 27, chased down Julian Edward Roosevelt Lewis, 60 years old, and rural Screven County uh, before unloading one round. Uh, Lewis was pronounced dead at scene. Authorities said riding in a Nissan Sentra, he had led Thompson on a brief chase. Um, uh, Mr. Lewis never got out of the vehicle, and the investigation will show that mere seconds after the crash, um, he was shot to death, shot in the face, and killed. Right? Uh, and this is all apparently over a, a taillight. Right? So a 60-year-old man shot in the face over a taillight. Um and again, these are the kind of issues that we gotta, we gotta be, um, we have to question. We gotta question the story. We gotta get the narrative. But uh, one basic question to ask is, if he did actually run, what are the conditions that would make a sixty-year-old man try and outrun a cop half his age? Uh, there are things that are going on that I think that still need to be brought to bear on this case. But it's nonetheless something to watch. What's up, Black Sand? All right. On three thought, what's going on? All right. Next up, um, America has 800 billionaires, a record high. You can see them, the image in the bottom right. I think this one I will uh, put up full screen. All right. From Jeff Bezos to Bill Gates to Zuckerberg to Warren Buffett, Larry Ellison, Steve Ballmer, Ellen Musk. You can see the, uh, the expansion of American billionaires, right? They're being termed the mega rich. And this rise of the billionaire class is made stark in a new report that paints their financial might in the most complete picture yet. Also serves as a vivid snapshot of American income inequality at a time when anti-billionaire sentiment is on the rise and fueling global backlash um, or backlash against ultra wealthy elites from both the left and the right. So the debate over whether the world's mega rich are too rich is really a debate about whether America's mega rich are too rich, right? So the number of billionaires reached 788 by the end of 2019, a 12% increase from the prior year, right? So this is obviously a time period where half of America is out of work. People are struggling, uh, whether or not there'll be any additional uh, uh, unemployment benefits is a question. Um, and yet what we're seeing is a mass expansion of the ultra-rich who, by and large, couldn't spend what they had um, in their lifetimes. This is a ridiculous amount of money, um, and yet people are struggling. Uh, San Francisco area is third most common home for billionaires, up from fifth in 2016. Other U.S. cities now among the, the biggest billionaire concentrations are New York um, and L.A., uh, number seven overall, New York being number one. Let's see. Um, Brandon, appreciate that Venmo. Um, let's see who we got in here. All right. So moving on a little bit. Namibia rejects Germany's $11.7 million offer to atone for what they call colonial era genocide. 
right? You'll If you read this article, which is on AtlantaBlackStar.com, you'll notice how much the German government uh, avoids the very word reparations, something we see here in America as well. Uh, Namibian president has rejected Germany's officer, offer, offer to compensate the Southern African nation for colonial era mass killings. Uh, it was said in the statement Tuesday that Berlin's offer of 11.7 million was not acceptable. So during the colonial era between 1904 and 1908, the German empire killed as many as 80,000 Herero and Nama people in response to an anti-colonial resistance per the U.S. Holocaust Museum. Other estimates put the number of African people killed over 100,000. Although Namibia and Germany have been negotiating the arrangement of an official apology and aid compensation from the European countries since 2015, Germany refuses to, to, to directly pay reparations to Namibia. It says that money has been given to Namibia in the form of developmental aid, um, and that has displaced the need for official reparations. The two countries have engaged in eight rounds of negotiations in the last five years. Descendants of those who survived the genocide say they are entitled to about $4 billion in compensation. Right? And that is uh, considerably less than what uh, researchers like uh, Sandy Darity have come to find uh, that American descendants of the enslaved need here as far as reparations, and yet Germany won't extend even that much. And so you can see the picture on the right, those who endured and survived and yet have been left out. Right? Um, let's see, Germany ruled modern-day Namibia, colony called German Southwest Africa at the time from 1884 to 1915. Following an anti-colonial uprising, German forces murdered at least 65,000 Herero, 10,000 Nama people by means of sexual violence, starvation, forced labor, malnutrition, and medical experiments. The Germans carried out what's been called the first genocide of the 20th century in order to gain access to the natives' land. Some 80% of the Herrera people and half the Nama people were wiped out. To this day, much of the most valuable land in Namibia is owned by the descendants of German colonists. So it's, it's, it needs to be understood the Germans never left. They kept the best for themselves um, and uh, basically put the country on the equivalent of aid while not really substantively paying back anything, right? Okay, Brandon is in the building. What's going on? Travis, what's happening? Alonzo, what's going on? Caveman, Black Sand, and Joe, the average brother. All right. uh, Joe makes a great point. I'll put up here. Thoughtful research can be found in the book Germany's Black Holocaust by Dr. Furpo Carr. I've met Dr. Carr. He, he actually does a, a, a very interesting piece in terms of that. Definitely something people got to check out. Um, if you haven't already, there was a population of black folk living in Germany. All right. Moving on, Colorado Springs cop suspended without pay and reassigned, but will keep his job despite creating fake Facebook profile to wish death on BLM post uh, uh, protesters. Right. Um, he'll be allowed to keep his job. He, he went under a, a false name and was basically talking about killing protesters um, in response to uh, protesters blocking traffic, Interstate 25 in downtown Colorado Springs. So Dr. Sergeant Keith Reed, uh, I don't even know how to pronounce his name, so that may or may not be right. The Colorado Springs Police Department is suspended and reassigned after an internal affairs investigation. 
So you can see in this instance here how many are able to espouse these ideas while legally holding position to enforce the law and whatnot. Uh, this piece here I thought was interesting. Again, some of my you know Chicago uh, supporters uh, might be able to 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 weigh in on this. I asked that question on Facebook a little earlier this week. What was going on? Because of course in the news it was just about looting in Chicago. Uh, but there is an article that uh, I was sent that gave us a little insight as to what was going on. Um, and it starts with the job losses, right? So 45% of young black males in Chicago are unemployed. And that seems to be, now look, that was the case in over 30 cities, 30 major urban cities in the United States prior to COVID, that black men were between 40 and 50% unemployed. So by the time you factor in COVID, alongside with a, a social expectation that black men provide and protect, you can see where a lot of this can go. Since COVID-19 is only one of the public crises facing Chicagoans, gun violence also impacts the physical and mental health of people in the disinvested neighborhoods. According to police data, July was one of the deadliest months in the city's history, surpassing the record death toll of September 1992. 440 people lost their lives by the end of July 2020. Many of the victims were children caught in the crossfire, including nine-year-old Janari Ricks. This violence is often attributed to gang warfare, but as community stakeholders like Hardeman claim, it doesn't fully tell the story. It says uh, what happened on Southside's Inglewood uh, neighborhood Sunday. According to police, a man fired at officers during the chase. They returned fire. He survived the wound. Uh, the use of force is currently under investigation by the Civilian Office of Police Accountability. Police say they recovered a gun on the scene, but the shooting wasn't captured on police body cameras. That raised a lot of suspicions. Community residents who already don't trust officers after the death of Laquan McDonald and Rakia Boyd and the department's history of police brutality started to take social media with their own theories. Mistrust leads to misinformation. According to the superintendent Brown, that misinformation led to violence and looting. Right. So more to come. But again, my uh, my Chicago people, this is definitely something we probably need to hear more about from y'all. Um, you know, uh, appreciate that father's time. Appreciate that support. All right. All right. Moving on. I think these last couple, uh, West Coast, appreciate that cash app. Uh, these last couple, I think, or this last one actually may uh, be something that Gigi might want to weigh in on a little bit, but this is an article that has to do with uh, Ubisoft, or Ubisoft, I, I may be mis mispronouncing that. I'm not really a gamer. That's my son's area, so he could probably, he'd probably know that better than I would, but uh, Ubisoft, I don't know, fires Assassin's Creed director after misconduct claims. So Ashraf Ishmael, the director of this fall's Assassin's Creed Valhalla, was accused by a fan in June of lying about his marital status in order to have a relationship with her. Shortly afterward, he wrote on Twitter that he had stepped down from his role, adding that he was deeply sorry to everyone hurt in this, but he remained an employee. The publisher informed staff this week that he was dismissed. So basically, what we have here, oh, here we go, right? So what we have here is uh, somebody who's stepping down for his from his position, basically because of infidelity. Um I'm going to go ahead and bring in the G with the PhD, um, who has, is no stranger to the Onyx Report. And please support his channel. Go check out the Green Gorilla. Subscribe. 
Um, check out his, his past videos. I posted many of them to my blog, um, uh, newblackmasculinities.wordpress.com. Uh, you will definitely be enlightened. Um, and he definitely brings the fire in his videos. But I wanted him to come in and talk about uh, the subject today, most particularly, you know, intimate partner violence, because he did a recent video that was off the chain dealing with the concept. And I think too many people, um, I think it's got a good number of views, but I know that it needs to have gotten a lot more. So I wanted to bring him in to comment on his thoughts regarding intimate partner violence, the relationship uh, with uh, philosophical analysis and reflection. Um, but I thought we would start with just a very basic question stemming from this Bloomberg article. What does it mean when we're in an era where somebody can lose their entire career due to infidelity? So, man, it just sounds as if uh, whatever men do is going to be held, held up to... Uh, ridiculous levels of scrutiny and uh right now the way people are enforcing morality on men is by means of cancellation and one of the tactics of cancelization is career destruction and so uh, it's not surprising to me mm-hmm. that, you know uh if he did something inappropriate to a woman that he would be penalized in this manner because this is this is what uh the tactic is the tactic of cancellation. Mm-hmm. Part of it is uh, reputation destruction and career destruction. Mm-hmm. So it's just, it's just not surprising to me. Yeah. But this is deep because now, even with more severe issues like rape, you know, and sexual assault, part of the problem has been that these cases are being tried in the court of public opinion against men um, and done so in a way where. You know, the so-called victims don't even always have to come forward. You can have somebody on Twitter level an accusation at you. You don't even get the 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 basic, you know, what do you call it? I wouldn't call it a right necessarily. I don't know. But you don't even get the basic respect of knowing who your accuser is. But your entire well-being is unquestioned just from a tweet from somebody you may not know is the case. And this actually recently happened with a student of mine. Uh, who um, is still trying to graduate from Fresno State and is grappling with something like this. So again, the the capacity to have perfect strangers or those veiling their identities on social media accuse you of something, and you you have to actually worry about your entire well-being, your entire relation, your your entire, well, yeah, your relationship, but also your professional standing um, in the face of, you know, something that hasn't even gone to law enforcement. There's no evidence that's been put forth. Just the accusation is considered grounds. And so now we're at a point where that's bad enough with something like rape and sexual assault, no evidence, claims being made. But now we're reaching a point where, you know, people are being called out for something like infidelity. And I'm, I'm like, is that a can of worms people really want to open? Because, you know, infidelity in terms of the data based on age, men and women both engage in it. You know, and I would argue that much of the data really doesn't reflect because a lot of it is like survey data. Um, I don't think because of the kind of social shaming around it with women that women were necessarily as forthcoming coming in some of these reports. So if we really get into opening this can of worms where people have to lose their careers over infidelity, is are Americans really ready for that? Is anybody? Well, I mean, you, 
all of this is uh fits within the context of patriarchy and uh you know the kind of oppression that men uh, utilize in order to uh, extract sexual favor and uh, display sexual dominance over women. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, this man was a director there at uh, Ubisoft. And, you know, in the minds of uh, the public, I guess, who, who are uh, disciples or who are promoters of, of, of the talking points of feminism, they're going to say, well, this man abuses power. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, that's going to be, uh, you know, the means by which they they, they uh, take him down. So, but I mean, you know, look, there was a, a recent video that I saw about the, uh, the work environment at Atari. I, I can't. Okay. It might have been on Netflix. If it wasn't on Netflix, it was on uh, Amazon Prime. But mm-hmm. I mean, they were just having a blast at Atari. I mean, they were drinking on the job, having affairs on the job. Uh, <laughs> it's an affair, sir. Yeah, but you know, look, let's face it. Where do people meet and date people? Mm-hmm. One of the places that they do know is mm-hmm. on their jobs. Absolutely. But now, uh, this is the, one of the reasons why men are retreating from being, uh, you know, social with women is because they're afraid of the implications of, of uh, that socialization. So it's like, okay, you socialize with a woman. You tell a woman to smile. You tell her she looks nice. You ask her to go out. It can be perceived as harassment. Mm-hmm. So, so men are just absconding from engaging in those relationships. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one could ask the question, you know, do men harass women? Yes, they do. But is asking a woman out on a, a date on the job or, you know, saying that a woman looks attractive on a job, is that the equivalent of harassment? Uh-huh. Uh, you know, I don't think it is, but, you know, uh, in this culture that we live in now, you know, anything could be uh, interpreted as, as a form of harassment. Mm-hmm. You sneeze too loud. <laughs> I'm being I'm being facetious there, but I mean, you get the picture. Absolutely. So you can't I- you can't tell a girl she looks pretty. You can't you know tell her to smile. You can't ask her out on a date. All of those things could be borderline, uh, you know, forms of harassment. Or considered to be forms of harassment, you know. Mm-hmm. But it's funny though that you uh, you mentioned, you know. Well, I, I mentioned it actually. Cancel culture. So, uh-huh. you know, recently, uh, you know, people have uh, been publishing articles related to this phenomenon, and and for the most part, they say that there's like six warning signs that is an indication that you're being subjected to pressure from cancel culture. Uh, okay. The first uh, element is punitiveness, which, you know, a fancy word for punishment. And one of the ways this is carried out, right, and you can ask the question, are people denouncing you to your employer, your professional groups, your social connections? Like, are you being blacklisted from job, social opportunities, right? And does what is being said about you have some sort of effect in jeopardizing your livelihood or isolating you socially. That is a part of cancel culture, right? Another one is deplatform. Mm-hmm. So deplatforming is something that you've talked about, uh, uh, you know, or people who are on this cancellation campaign attempting to prevent you from publishing your work, mm-hmm. being able to give a speech or attending meetings, mm-hmm. right? 
are they basically saying that allowing you to be heard is a form of violence against them or if it makes them feel unsafe? Like mm -hmm. recently, uh, I don't know if the listeners know about Adolf Reed, but Adolf Reed is a uh, academician that's been doing work on race and Marxist theory for quite a bit of time. Mm -hmm. And recently, uh, he was slated to give a speech at some university somewhere. And uh, I think the DSA, the Democratic Socialist Association, just refused to have him come in because there were people on social media platforms who basically were making the case that if he was able to give his talk, then they would feel unsafe. They felt like him being able to give his talk was a form of violence, mm. right? So that's the second, right? Uh, another element of cancel culture is what they call organization. So it's one thing to have random people here and there make a critical remark about your work or about something you've said or done. Mm. But if the criticism like seems to be targeted, if it seems to be organized, right? And mm -hmm. if they're recruiting other people to get on top of it, like to sign documents, to illustrate or demonstrate that this person, right, mm -hmm. uh, needs to be critiqued further and further and further, right? Or people like scouring through uh, what you've done and your social media, uh, you know, comments or your threads to use it as ammunition against you, well, then you've been subjected to cancellation, mm -hmm. right? Uh, another element is what they call secondary boycotts, right? Mm. So, so what this is, and it's, it's in the form of a question, like it, is there an explicit or an implicit threat that people who support you will get the same treatment that you're receiving? Right. So it ain't just you being subjected to cancellation, it's the people who, stand in, who are standing around you or people who are close to you, right? Mm. So mm -hmm. that's another form of uh, uh of a sign that you're being canceled and uh another one is what they call moral grandstanding mm. right so moral grandstanding basically is being subjected to ad hominem attacks repetitive ritualistic and accusatory and outraged attacks at the kind of work that you're doing right mm. so if people are coming out and saying things like well the work you do is violent or you know that the work you're doing is outrageous the work you're doing is oppressive that could be an indication or a sign that you're being subjected to cancel culture mm -hmm. and and uh the last thing is what they call truthiness right <laughs> right so so basically this means right or the things being said about you inaccurate mm -hmm. the people saying them not even seem to care about the truthfulness of what it is that they're saying, right? Do mm -hmm. they feel at liberty to distort the words that you have, mm -hmm. to more corrections, right? And to make false accusations about what you've done. So those are all signs that you, you're being subjected to cancellation. And this is just part of our culture now, right? And it's, it's a targeted attack on individuals, character, their work, and you know, I, I just I feel I feel terrible terrible about this because it, to me it's just a limitation of free speech, mm. and a way to you know constrain narratives and discourses. Right. You know, I I stand against it. No, absolutely, and it needs to be challenged because the way it's being dealt with now, um, there's no margin for disagreement. 
I mean, really, we're talking about a collective kind of group think that uh, needs to be supported or your entire well-being and career and so on and so forth have to be done away with. And it's absolutely ridiculous, um, especially when you start to talk about black men who, you know, really are articulating issues and concerns that have taken, you know, really generations. I mean, when I talk to like my father's, you know, generation, a couple of men from my father's generation, I mean, some of the things we're talking about now, they're blown away by because they've been feeling them since they were young men, but they didn't quite have the vocabulary and they damn sure didn't have the space to kind of develop one. And so it's happening now, but it's happening under a lot of duress. It's happening under a lot of um, shaming tactics. And of course, um, you know, deplatforming and everything else you just described in regard to cancel culture. So it's getting ridiculous, you know, in, in that sense. But I'm curious if we can shift a little bit and deal uh, with, you know, intimate partner violence. Um, and this is something you've had some experience with as well. Talk to us a little bit about the research you, you, you've done on the area, in the area and what you found to be the case. Yeah, so, I mean, look, I don't know if I can uh, share something with uh, the people on... Uh, let me let me try to share uh, something on the screen here. Uh, I, I don't know if this this is going to work, but I think it should be able to. Okay, let me let me see if I can do this. Okay, is everybody seeing that? No, I'm not seeing anything yet. But uh, oh, wait a minute, hold on. Let me, I, I got to add it to the screen. So there you go. So, okay, does everybody see that? Yeah. Okay, so this is for the most part. Everybody still see it? Yeah. Right, so look, despite evidence provided in over 280 plus peer-reviewed studies on intimate partner violence that shows that women are just as likely to be divided towards their partners as men, and for the same reasons and motivations, because mm-hmm. like a, lot, a lot of times, you know, people like to backpedal on this issue and argue that women are merely fighting back. Right, so implementing self-defense, right? Mostly men are going to be convicted and punished for domestic violence incidents, right? And so this is just, uh, you know, I show this because the laundry list is long. Like I'm look, so you got one from 2002, one from 1988, 2009, 2000, 2006, 1989, 1987, right? Like these, these one 1983, right? And I can't, like, I can scroll down. I mean, like the list is long. I'm not doing this so you can see the exact studies themselves, but it takes to go into publishing a peer-reviewed journal article that's published in a reputable journal. You already know that. Absolutely. And when it comes to conducting research and utilizing human subjects, it has to be passed over and approved by an internal review board. Mm -hmm. Right? So all of these studies have been done but none of them are being utilized to demonstrate the fact that women are just as likely, if not more likely, to commit acts of violence 
against their intimate partners as men. Mm -hmm. Right? That's a problem. Okay. <laughs> I mm -hmm. mean, that's a problem. Okay. So, and what ends up happening is law enforcement officers, and you already know the demographic of most of these people, right? They're mostly white men. They're going to rush to the scene like white knights. And then they're going to coddle these women. And it happens even when men are making calls to report domestic violence. Mm. Right? And so these officers are going to jail men because there's mandatory arrest policies. So if it's a call being conducted or, you know, a call being made, in all likelihood, it's going to be the woman making the call, right? Because men don't make calls, or very rarely do they make calls for domestic violence incidents. It's primarily women that do this, right? But when there's evidence that something has occurred, somebody or both parties have to go to jail. Somebody's got to go, okay? Um, but the, the problem with this is that these police officers have been trained by domestic violence activists, right, who are mostly privileged middle-class white women, right, they're going to be trained to identify men as the primary aggressors and the mm -hmm. primary perpetrators of IPV, right? Now, the reason for this is because primarily the, the, the nation is working under the Duluth model of domestic violence. Right. And the causation of it domestic violence and the etiology related to it is reduced to male dominance. So the reason that domestic violence happens is because a man is trying to coerce a woman into doing something that he wants her to do. That's the reason, right? So I'll get to other reasons later, right? But the true reasons born out by science as opposed to what's born out by political ideology, right? So the feminist notion of domestic violence, and it was developed by Ellen Pence, right? And I think you and Dr. Curry kind of talked about this when y'all had your all's conversation. Mm -hmm. But she, she came up with something called the power and control wheel. And for the most part, domestic violence in her mind, until she came and recanted in 1999, domestic violence was primarily caused by patriarchy and male dominance, okay? So... Women, for the most part, who have filed domestic violence claims, they'll never be asked whether they were reared in a household with a history of family violence. Mm. They'll never be asked whether they were abused as children. They'll never be asked is, you know, asked if they have a pattern of dealing with their anger issues through violence, mm. or whether they've played a role in fomenting violent conflict and crisis in their intimate relationships. They'll never be asked any of these questions, right? But the assumption will be that the man has somehow initiated the violence in order to control her, in order to dominate her, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Now, if my viewpoint, if, if this isn't a form of privilege, I don't know what it is, mm. right? Because it's a privilege to be perceived as a caring, nurturing, truth teller, and to be sympathized with for being hit by a man but it's a burden to be perceived as a pernicious liar and a fabricator, somebody who creates canards while enduring the same kind of treatment by a woman. Hmm. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So, and I'm just breaking it down how I think about it, right? Mm -hmm. Now, the bad part of all of this is that 
social justice advocates for women, they basically have hijacked the criminal justice system to tackle the problem of domestic violence. Mm -hmm. And as, as a result, what they're doing is they're creating social death and they're incriminating hordes of men, decent men, mm -hmm. at the whim of many violent and dysfunctional women, right? Now, I'm just, I'm just gonna be honest here. It's true. Men are often violent in intimate partner relationships, okay? It happens, right? It happens. Mm -hmm. And their behavior needs to be addressed. It does. But treating half of the problem is not a practical approach to figuring out a way to resolve this issue. And we and we have to add to that too, you know, socialization, particularly through media, plays a significant role in this, right? Because even early on, and you know, again, we talked about this with Ellen Pence. Early on, the very idea of being an abused victim was not something that was common. Nobody immediately understood what that was. That had to be constructed. And so women had to be taught to see themselves as such. So you had this plethora of films in the 1980s and 90s uh, and even in the 70s to some extent. But, you know, these films that came out that taught people what it was to be abused in an intimate bar uh, partner situation what that looked like and what the primary narrative of that was. So usually like when I'm teaching a class and I ask the students, you know, what is domestic violence? What is intimate partner violence? They can give you a story, you know, a husband who's beating his wife an attacker in an alley, chasing a woman with a knife. There are these very distinct stories that they can give you. We have not had stories constructed that outside of prison, that really kind of highlight male victimization in ways that are palatable. So when you add in these movies and television shows over the last you know few decades that really train people on how to even think about the issue, you know what we where we reach with that is is a is a kind of one sided kind of thing. Matter of fact, when you talk about intimate partner violence, people assume that this is an issue that is owned by women. And if you talk about it, and, and I would argue intersectionality is the same, it's it's owned by women. And if you actually challenge that or even raise questions that don't fall into that primary lane, you're automatically seen as problematic. You're, already you're automatically seen as trying to subvert the narrative with untruths um, and, and playing around with, you know, all of these different kinds of things. But all of those critiques divert us from the reality of male victimization. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to do this three-part series this week was to kind of delve in and look at this from different different vantage points, you know, from a legal vantage point, from a theoretical vantage point, point uh, from a religious, you know, vantage point, an ideological vantage point. I wanted us to be able to make sense of it in regard to male victimization because we don't know how to talk about male victimization. And just as women have been taught to see themselves as the primary victims in IPV, even when the rates show that particularly in the black community, this is bi-directional. It's not equal, you know, in terms of the aggression coming from one side or the other. The women are more apt to use weapons. Women are more apt to initiate the 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 the, the, the uh, altercations. None of that data is known on a general level. Despite all of that, you know, men themselves have been acculturated into the idea that they are the problem, and that if they are victimized, it's really not victimization. They're really not suffering from anything. They just need to be more men, more. They, they need to be more masculine. And that's the end of the equation. But that could just end up having you locked up. You know, so it, it, anyway, I just want to kind of 
kind of add that socialization element to this because that shapes how we understand the issue altogether. Yeah, you know, I, I agree. Um, like, again, man, despite this evidence, and like the last time that this guy updated this uh, bibliography was in 2012, right? So I'm pretty sure that there's been more studies done, uh, but he probably, you know, these guys check in and check out a research. I mean, he, he may be done with it, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. For other persons to take on the task of updating this annotated bibliography that he has here. But look, in my view, if you have all this social scientific research, but you just continue to ignore, 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 ignore it, then as far as I'm concerned, what you're doing is you're basically reducing IPV down to a social and political witch hunt, right. levied against men. And quite frankly, what I think, it has the effect of breaking down the very fabric of Western culture and society, which is basically the mutual cooperation between men and women to rear children. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Keep it honest. Uh-oh. Because part of this is, it, look, what smashing patriarchy means smashing men as fathers of children. <laughs> that, bottom line, that's, that's what it means. Mm. And, and you know, earlier today, uh, I looked up a concept called patria potestas. Okay. Mm. Now, what, what patria potestas means is the absolute power of the father. And, and like this, this concept comes from Roman culture. And mm. the men in Roman culture had absolute patriarchal power over their families. Mm. They could even exact capital punishment of any of their children with no punishment being, uh, you know, no retribution being sought by behalf of the state. So if, you're, if your kid does something you don't like, you can kill your kid and there'll be no punishment from the Roman state. Now we have nothing near close to that in this culture. Not, nothing that even resembles it, right? Because as soon as you touch a kid nowadays, guess what's going to end up happening? Right. If a kid calls, the children uh, division of family services or whatever the case may be, they're going to come in a bureaucracy, you know, and, and some representative from that bureaucracy, they're going to start asking questions. They're going to, you know, do an investigation of the home, look at the surroundings, interview the child, hire some sort of, or have her uh, assigned or him, uh, the child, I mean, assigned to a psychiatrist or a psychologist to try to figure out what's happening. This mm-hmm. is state, this is state, control. And, and, you know, we're supposed to be living in this liberal culture and this liberal society where everyone is free. But explain to me how that's freedom. And you want to protect children, right? No no doubt. You know, you you want to protect children. But every time you, you know, you you, uh, lay the strap to a child doesn't necessarily mean that you're abusing the child. Now, can you go overboard? Yes. But this is some deep state stuff, man. This is not, you know, this is not like the home of the free in, in, in the land of the brave. This is like the deep state, man. Well, so I just well, want to continue because I want you to continue. I want to, you know, welcome in um, uh, Dr. Ronald Neal, um, who's, who's, who's joined us in here. How you doing, man? I'm doing well. How you guys doing? Doing pretty well, my brother. Well, good. 
Now, yeah. Gigi, you know, I'm going to let you keep breaking that down. I just wanted to kind of welcome him in. Uh, but yeah. please continue. So, so at any rate, at, prior to the advent of the Duluth model being the preeminent model by which domestic violence is handled, the police used to knock on your door, try to figure out what's going on. Nine times out of 10, you know, the, the people need to be separated for a night or something like that. And then they end up getting back together. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, but now <laughs> the entire uh, event is presumed to be, uh, you know, an infraction against the state. So you've done something that the state's going to pick up the case for. The woman doesn't even have to, you know, uh, file a claim. All she had to do was call the police initially. The state's going to pick up the case and they're going to prosecute you with all the powers available to you. Right? Now, look, let me just say this, man. This puts an immense amount of power in the hands of women. And women do abuse this. If it is the case that in over 50% of the cases, and it's more than that, but we'll get to that later. But the whole point is, if women are kicking off a lot of this violence, and then they're calling the police, and then somebody's got to go to jail, and then in all likelihood, it's going to be you going to jail if you're a man. This woman knows that this apparatus exists and they will utilize it when they're going through a fit of rage against you. Hmm. This in and of itself could be characterized as a form of abuse, as far as I'm concerned. Hmm. I think that this is writ large abuse against men. Hmm. That's just my viewpoint on it. Now, I mean, one could argue, well... We need to take some sort of measurements and steps to try to mitigate the problem of domestic violence. But if you're only mitigating it by means of addressing one part of it, then you're not really addressing the problem at all. Mm -hmm. It takes two to tango, mm -hmm. right? It takes two to tango. But anyway, look, I'm going to tell you the truth, man. Like, it's my strong belief most men don't even want to hit their partner, right? Because you don't, as a man, you don't get points from harming somebody that's weakening you. Right. You just don't get you don't get points for that, right? Well, you, and, and it's ironic you don't get points from initiating harm. You don't even get you don't get points for defending yourself. You are ridiculed and critiqued if you engage in any kind of physicality with women at all. You know, which creates a very vulnerable kind of situation. But see, here's the deal. Um, you know, look, boys are taught at every stage of their development. You know, don't don't hurt women. Mm -hmm. Don't hit women. Mm -hmm. Don't women. We're all taught this. But the problem is, you I can never recall hearing a rule that strictly forbids women of attacking or assaulting or abusing men. I, I've never heard of it. Mm -hmm. But if it's the case that they're the ones initiating violence in a majority of cases, one would think, okay, well, they also need to be taught this. There needs to be a public health campaign that demonstrates to women that this kind of behavior is inappropriate. But it's never coming to the surface, primarily because we're still stuck with a macronistic model, not predicated right. upon social scientific research, but predicated upon political ideology, in particular, feminist ideology, which puts the etiology of domestic violence or puts forth the notion that it's, it's related to, to male dominance. If we don't get out of that, we're never going to solve this problem. 
women are going to continue to get hurt. Men are going to get hurt because let's, let's face it, men are getting killed because of domestic violence and intimate partner violence as well. It ain't just women getting killed by this. Mm -hmm. Odd to me every time you you hear women talk about how men are their oppressors. Men men are our oppressors. Men are our oppressors. You're neglecting to make mention of the fact that one third of the victims of intimate partner violence, and I'm not just talking about, you know, like the light handed punching and slapping the people do inside of the home. One third of the people that have to go to the emergency room because of domestic violence are men. Mm. One third are the persons who are killed by means of intimate partner homicide are men. Men are mm. killed over this, just like women are. Mm -hmm. so we, we often overemphasize, you know, the idea of women being killed. I mean, it happens. I'm not saying it doesn't happen. It does happen. Mm -hmm. But in a lot of cases, one third of these cases, women are killing men. Dead. Like you, um, I saw on your page, uh, your Facebook page not too long ago, a situation in which some woman shot a man because the man didn't want to have an argument with her. Yeah, I don't know what city that was in. That could have killed that man. Yeah, you well, know, it, it, not long ago, before that, there was a woman who uh, her husband came home, found her having sex with someone else. Did he didn't say anything? He didn't attack anybody. He started to grab his stuff to leave, and she shot him because he was leaving her. So yeah, I mean, like the nerve, like you getting it on, you you getting down, you you throwing a whop around. And, and then you got a nerve to shoot somebody. See, this is this is the problem, right? So it, look, girls don't receive the same sort of tutelage that men get about keeping their hands to themselves. And this is based on the assumption. It's just an assumption, right? Mm -hmm. The women just don't initiate violence with or abuse men. And when they do, there has to be some sort of justifiable explanation. Mm -hmm. Must have been something he did to make her do that. Right. Couldn't have been this woman is just vicious. Can't be that she's violent. Can't be that she has a background of violence. Can't be that her she has a background of family violence in terms of uh, her family is, uh, you know, has engaged in these kind of actions. So she saw her parents do it. It's got to be the man at all times. Right. It's got to be the man. So as far as I'm concerned, this is just. Ultimately arguing. And it's an unstated premise. Men are rough, violent, and bad. Women are soft, peaceful, and good. Men are the abusers. Women are the abused. This is binary thinking. Mm -hmm. And the funny thing about it is feminists are the very persons who eschew, who attack, who critique binary thinking. Mm -hmm. It's convenient, though, when it comes to this phenomenon, right? This binary. Mm -hmm. But the binaries are bad in any other kind of situations when it comes to gender and sex let's get away with binaries but this binary sticks the binary that women are sugar and spice and everything nice and men are snips and snails and puppy dog tails right. right and so all i'm saying is at one point it could, the case could be made that the poles were switched on the binary because it is the case that in the past women were perceived as inferior uh, they were perceived as irrational, uh, you know, evil, passive, and so on and so forth, right? Mm -hmm. But the solution to that problem is not just to switch the poles and, and to do the same thing that has been done before.
which I think is exactly what's being done, right? Mm -hmm. so the polls have been switched related to gender, such that women are now ascribed all these positive, uh, positive qualities and characteristics, but men are being ascribed the negative ones, right? Mm -hmm. But if you want to get rid of binary thinking, and I do think, you know, binaries have their purpose, right? Uh, but people exist across climes, meaning like they're gradations. People don't just fit neatly into categories. Mm -hmm. right? So to plug in negativity, oppression, evil, maliciousness, violence, just to plug men into that category and to ascribe all these negative qualities to them, it's, it's ignorant. It, to me, it's unjust. Mm -hmm. That's just my viewpoint. If it's unjust to do it to women, it's unjust to do it to men. Exactly. And, and of course, this starts in childhood, like you pointed out. I mean, I remember, you know, the first time you hear never put your hands on a girl, you know, you might be five years old. And, you know, that's that time period where everybody's the same strength and yeah. she's wailing on you, but you're not supposed to take and nobody's really telling her you shouldn't hit boys. See, that's the key. Right. We're taught you shouldn't hit girls, but nobody tells the girls you shouldn't hit, shouldn't hit boys. And so as we escalate and advance into adulthood, you know, this same sense of not really having to be accountable for your behavior, I think, still plays a role in how women, you know, in, in, in internalize and relate to men because they don't believe that re there's really any kind of accountability. Let's bring uh, let's bring Dr. Neal into this conversation. Sir, how you been? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Can you all hear me? Yeah, we can hear you. Okay. Uh, we, we, you know, as you know, we're talking about intimate partner violence, and we started out looking at a case uh, where, at a, I think it was a video game company, there was a man who had to step down from his position mm -hmm. because uh, somebody at uh, on Twitter, a fan, that's all it was said, uh, accused him of infidelity and lying mm -hmm. about being married. So mm -hmm. we started the conversation with that, and then we kind of advanced into intimate partner violence. But uh, you know, let's 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 get you in here. Tell us your thoughts about where you're seeing intimate partner violence in particular, um, and and how the, how does that play out uh, with your in terms of your research overall? You're a scholar in religion, you know. Kind of walk us through how you approach these things. Yeah, I um, well, well, for me, um, I'm looking at th that factor or those factors that you know are not quite on the table explored. Um, and that is the kind of the causes, um, the cultural and, you know, the religious causes um, to tension and conflict within households. I mean, we have to think about the household. We have to think about the populations that we're talking about in particular. We're largely talking about black people, right? Right. And so we're talking about black people who have been formed um, by traditions, uh, Christian traditions, uh, Islamic traditions. Uh, informed by traditions that have very um, uh, stringent and clear uh, ideas about the roles of men and women, uh, the roles of husbands, the, the roles of wives, uh, what's expected. And we talk about gender expectations and the like. We talk about patriarchy. So that's the, that's, that's the bottom line, a kind of patriarchal so socialization. So, so the question is, if you have a, a scenario where you have a man, let's say there's a man who get, you know, has a, an argument with his wife or what have you, and that argument uh, ultimately results in that man killing his wife, okay? Mm. Um, the question is why, all right? Why um, did that murder occur? And that's something that we don't typically um, 
uh, address. That is, if you talk to you talk to people, if you talk to feminists, if you talk to activists, and the like, the question of why or the sources of conflict um, are treated as something that's just taboo. We don't care about the the, the nature of the, the the conflict, why they had an argument, why he picked up a gun, or why he he stabbed her, or why um, she's you know she's no longer here. Uh, for them, it's just the final outcome that this was a, a patriarchal act of violence. And I raise the question of the why because you know when we look at tension, we have to really think about what's going on in household, um, how the household has been constructed, um, what are the power dynamics in the household. How do you understand if you're talking about a, a uh, you know a married a marriage uh, married couple or even a cohabiting you know couple, um, you know where where is the the source of authority and power? Is it the kind of household where it is assumed um, where the, the the male figure, the man, is supposed to be this type of patriarchal leader, protector, provider, and all of that? And is it the kind of household where this man can be under pressure to live up to those sorts of values and for whatever reasons, because of economic distress, because of, um, you know, personal issues, he is unable to live up uh, to those ideas that as a consequence, you have conflict, you have tension, you have arguments. And if he has a partner, a wife um, or a, you know, a girlfriend who has you know internalized these ideas of course there's going to be tension and and violence can be um the outcome of that and that's a part of the you know the whole dynamic that, that we're not really looking at you know we have to think about this black women in particular you know black women um are major consumers of religion uh major uh participants in terms of the church um you know in, in terms of what they uh, learn from the pulpit, from the institution, from religious media and the like. I mean, they're, they're constantly bombarded with messages about men, um, patriarchal messages, um, you know, patriarchal texts, readings from the Bible and the like, which, you know, tell them what they expect, what they should expect, what they're entitled to. And so much of the, and this, this is a larger dynamic in terms of the tensions that we have, I guess, writ at large in terms of black men and women, particularly heterosexual black men and women, that there is this disjunction in terms of you know our status in the world and our inability to to live up to these creeds and these you know these traditions Abrahamic traditions and my work I've, I refer to it as you know Abrahamic uh, masculinity um, and that's that's the part the cultural religious part that really um, you know is not is not addressed the other part of it is this. Um, so what happens uh, in households where the roles are reversed? That is, um, other than, you know, beyond you have like a traditional patriar patriarchal household where you have a biological male who is a husband who's supposed to play the role of a, of a, of a, of a husband and a biological female. What happens when the, the roles are reversed? What happens when you have a woman who assumes the role of a husband? Uh, and the, the male figure assumes the role of a wife, okay? Uh, where she is the kind of proverb, proverbial head of the household. So when you have those stories uh, and those scenarios, which you've already showed, where you have women um, being the aggressor, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the woman who initiates the violence and who seems justified for it, you have to ask yourself the question, well, you know, what type of household, um, you know, are, are these people existing in? Okay, in terms of what are the, what are the power dynamics? And so 
that that raises you know very important questions about um, you know how we think about you know men and and women. And again, it goes back to the religious tradition. So at one level, we can talk about men. At least I've talked about men um, in terms of Abrahamic masculinity, but you can also talk about um, women in terms of Abrahamic femininity. Okay, that is that is you can have a woman who has this male consciousness. She's the masculine figure. Okay, she's Mm -hmm. the she's the head of the household. She makes all the decisions. Um, um, she she functions for all practical purposes as a man. And her husband um, is the wife, and so um, you know, under that type of um, you know construct, I mean, it, it, it gives you a different lens um, for looking at it. But I think um, you know, in terms of what I'm doing, what, what my work and what I'm doing, it's more qualitative. So once you get beyond the social science research, uh, once you get beyond um, you know the feminist politics, in terms of how the uh, the nonprofit uh, people and activists have interpreted, and the scholars uh, have interpreted domestic violence, how they've shaped policy and the like. There's that other cultural component, you know, religious, um, that has to be factored. And in black religion culture, and particularly it's, it's Christian culture. So I'll just give you an example. So if you look at someone like Tyler Perry, um, you know, Tyler Perry, you know, it, you know, in his films, you know, one of the the, the persistent kind of, you know, themes has been this, you know, uh, male violence towards w- women. You know, his first, even if, you know, the first movie that he he put out, um, the, you know, Diary of a Mad Black Woman, I mean, that was a film that was steeped in domestic violence. And if you watch most of his work, I mean, damn near every film that he has produced has some has some type of uh, 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 scenario where women are in distress and they are subject to violence, you know, against men, um, 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 by men rather. Um, and, and then you've got the other figures there, the archetype of, you know, Madea, and she's the, the intervener. Uh, you often have uh, pastors who are who are also a part of the um, uh, the narration of that, uh, as you know, as mediators and the like. But Tyler Perry, you know, who also you know, he's been influenced by, uh, you know, um, uh, Alice Walker, um, Terry McMillan, all these other people who came before him during the 1990s. Really, he's kind of like he, re- he really kind of remixed those narratives. Um, he's he's someone that really kind of gives you a picture of the, the degree to which black people have kind of internalized uh, a lot of these you know patriarchal notions and how they kind of play out, at least in his mind. Um, you know, in 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 these scripts, but but that's the part that we haven't really interrogated um, the kind of religious consciousness and what happens, particularly with black men. Uh, and I say this, um, I've said this, you know, in, in my work and even you know in public, you know, black men uh, encounter a great deal of hostility, particularly in religious institutions, churches in particular. Because black men are held to these utopian standards of masculinity that they can't live out, and so much of the tension that we that we have within black culture is really, really fomented by what's going on in these institutions and in these homes and by the culture that's being consumed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I've been posting, you know, as you guys could see while you were talking 
some of the images that I think drive home, you know, the conversation. Because again, I, I've met scholars who argue that men cannot be subject to domestic abuse. Black men in particular cannot be victims of it. And yet we're seeing more and more evidence on social media and in news reporting that this is happening. And it's not new, according to the data. It's really not new. But, you know, many of us still operate as if it can't happen, it doesn't happen. And yet there's there's really a, a you know, kind of bifurcated approach when it comes to, you know, holding uh, men actually being able to articulate their experiences. But, you know, any responses to some of these images like this one here? Let me let me let me just say this. Right. Mm -hmm. The very idea that men can't be subjected to domestic violence, first of all, is uh, contradicted by the social scientific evidence. Mm -hmm. um, but. It seems to me like every time we talk about this issue, the only thing that we're worried about is the physical impact yes. of violence. We don't explore or we don't, you know, investigate the kind of psychological impact that domestic violence have, has on, on men or right. women. You know, we just talk about asymmetrical power relationships between men and women because men on average have larger hearts, they have larger lungs, they have more upper body strength, and they're typically, you know, four to five inches taller than women. Right. Uh, but, you know, the reality is, you know, the impact that uh, domestic violence has, it, it moves beyond, uh, you know, physical wounds, mm -hmm. right? It, it, it is it's deeper than just the wounds that are imposed on flesh. You got humiliation, Fear, anxiety, depression, a lack of a sense of self-worth. You got weight loss, restlessness, poor job performance, substance abuse. Right? All of these things are correlated with domestic violence. Mm -hmm. But of course, a man is supposed to just man up. Mm -hmm. Right now, you know, I use that term here and there, but you know, oftentimes I use it sarcastically and ironically. But I mean, we're actually being told that we have to man up and take this abuse. Right. Because it's not really actually something that's happening to us. They can have an impact, a deleterious impact on us, right? But yes, having to deal with rebelliousness and the being struck and, you know, being kicked or bitten or, you know, just even being subjected to mild or, you know, more ab emotional uh, abusive uh, kinds of acts can leave a person uh, anxious and depressed, right? right. And, and, you know, like what, what men typically end up doing is saying, you know, this woman is crazy. She crazy, you know, just avoid the crazy women. And what that does is it takes away intentionality. Yes. And, and, it, and it takes away agency from the woman as if you know, she doesn't have the capacity to think through what she's doing and be held culpable for. It's yeah. just a function of something that she has no control over. Right. As far as I'm concerned, that's absolute nonsense. Women have the capacity, moral capacities of men. They make choices. They can find their choices. And they need to be held responsible for the choices they make, no less than men. Mm -hmm. You see, in this culture, you know, we suffer from what, what you know, I, I call the women a wonderful effect. And it's not something that I made up, but, uh, you know, there's a group of social scientists. I can't recall their names right now. I can look it up if you want me to really briefly. But, I mean, the idea, again, and I've kind of, you know, talked about this, that women are just like sugar and spice and everything nice. Like, we all know that there are nurturing women. We know this. 
mm-hmm. you know. Uh, but also, there are some women who are vicious out here, man. And mm-hmm. you know, what I think what Western culture in general, I mean, and this is a relatively recent phenomenon, because, like, you know, you look back in the annals of time, men had no problem assigning viciousness to women. But mm-hmm. at the current moment, we seem to be rendered incapable of assigning viciousness to women. And not to say that women are innately vicious, all of them, you know, that's not the the point that's being made. No, it's a human, it's a human capacity. It's a human capacity. Men are fallible, women are fallible. And they're apt along the course of their lives to make bad decisions. And then I, 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 I would add also, you know, since we're talking about, you know, black men in particular, um, I think the fact of socialization I think we can't minimize the extent to which growing up in female households, growing up around women, uh, growing up being imbued with the idea, all right, that you are to um, have a type of strenuous mentality when it comes down to women and struggle um, and that you are to endure, you know, like a soldier, um, you know, all sorts of violence and abuse, you know, and, and the idea, of course, that it's a part of, you know, uh, manhood and, you know, you manning up and somehow or another, it's a rite of passage for you to, uh, to engage um, mm-hmm. with a woman who is violent towards you, okay? And that, that somehow, you know, there's, there's nothing abnormal or aberrant uh, about that. And so I think that um, because of how we're socialized, and how masculinity um, has been so obliterated um, uh, in, you know, in black society um, that black men have a, you know, a, 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 a special type of burden and condition when it comes down to these situations, mm-hmm. um, because 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 the, the the whole long suffering narrative. Because here's the thing, you know, we are many of us were, were socialized to look at. Um, our mothers, our aunts, our grandmothers as these, you know, long suffering um, um, matriarchs who've had to struggle and, and, and work and raise children by themselves and be mother, mother and father. And whatever type of, you know, traumatic impact that they have had, um, that they, 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 you know, uh, experience as a, as a result of that, we're supposed to be compassionate we're supposed to be um, accepting and tolerant, uh, even even if even if it means um, you know in, you know enduring the kind of violence that is directed towards us. So I, I think that's a that's a major part of it, and we don't have space, you know. And we're we're doing that now, but we simply don't have space uh, in Black society to break the hold, to break to break the grip of that um, sort sort of thinking. Well, I think and, I'll go ahead. Yeah, and, and, and it goes again back to the institutions. Mm-hmm. And so so all of this is reinforced by institutions, yes. okay? Yes. And, and and the primary institution, I have to say, it's, I mean, you're talking about churches. These are the primary institutions that reinforce these notions. These, are, you know, are the institutions that have the most influence um, on, you know, on black women. Um, they support them the most, most. And uh, and these ideas just circulate all across all across the culture, and uh, and we simply don't have a, 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 a an openness within the culture to to really attack these you know detrimental beliefs. Well, and part of the issue too, you know, especially when you invoke the church, 
the last few decades, one of the major issues has been the two populations that, you know, I've heard, and maybe you can correct me on this, have been diminishing, particularly in the black church. That is, you know, uh, the youth and Mm -hmm. men. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not sure about the youth anymore, but I have I, so from the 80s onward, one of the major issues with the black Christian church has been, you know, men, black men declining mm-hmm. in, in presence, in number, so yeah. on and so forth. And the impact of that, and a lot of that has to do with some of the things you're talking about. But I would also argue it has to do with media, because as you mentioned a moment ago, black men are starting to have these conversations, but we're doing it in isolated, you know, media pla- like this, like in mm-hmm. There's no major corporate backing for this discussion. You know what I mean? I'm, 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 we're in here on a, on a Friday night having this discussion because the space is available. But you're not going to see this on television. You're not going to see this on any kind of cable hookup or any major, you know, internet platform uh, because the only ones that can have this conversation in regard to the black community are handpicked by mm-hmm. institutions, and they are not black institutions at that. Mm-hmm. But the other side of the media influence, I'm going to show you guys a couple of pictures um, just to kind of, you know, drive home my question about this. Uh, I posted this a little while back on Facebook. Uh, how many of you guys remember Jasmine Sullivan's song, Bust Your Windows? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? This kind of, of, of really violence, because it's really what it is, right, mm-hmm. is supported by certain media platforms. You know, mm-hmm. you really can't have men making songs like this. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. About what you're going to do if your partner decides to do whatever, see somebody else or leave you or whatever. You have songs like this that come up or um, this here, uh, which I know most people are familiar with. Now, this was a meme that somebody created, but I thought it was appropriate, right? Because this was, of course, on the right, you have the uh, the image of uh, the young woman that, that set uh, you know, the man's uh, Jeep or SUV on fire and it blew up in her face. She survived. And to my knowledge, she was arrested. But, you know, the inspiration for that kind of thing is mm-hmm. without question, Angela Bassett's performance in waiting. It was that waiting to exhale. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the, all mm-hmm. those kind of blur together <laughs> from color purple, the girls trip. They all they all kind of blur together sometimes. But um, but you can't tell me that this wasn't some type of inspiration, you know, where you have this heroic moment. Where you know Angela Bassett's character sets all of her husband's belongings on fire because he decides to leave her for another woman, and that's kind of lionized. You know, it's it's made heroic. It's made an empowering gesture that she she sets all of that on fire mm-hmm. uh, in, in her driveway, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, can you picture the opposite happening? Because we mm-hmm. act like women don't leave men. We act like wives don't leave husbands for other mm-hmm. men or whatever. Can you can picture a man setting all of his wife's belongings on fire and, you know, and and, and really the, the potential threat that that implies against mm-hmm. him when, you know, he actually or against the, her when she actually comes home. Right. Can you picture mm-hmm. that being championed in a film? No, no, no. You, you can't picture, you know, I mean, it's, it's vengeance. I mean, what we're looking at is normalized vengeance. Absolutely. I mean, we can go back to the 90s. I mean, you remember Andre Risen, the Atlanta, you know, Falcons football player was involved with Lisa Left Eye Lopez. And, you know, things went awry in their relationship, but she burned his house down. You know what I mean? And I remember sisters cheering that. Yeah. 
Yeah, I remember that man vividly, you know. Um, yeah. And you yeah, know, yeah. yeah, go ahead, brother, brother Ron. And, I don't wanna... and, and the go thing, you know, you know, back to and I don't wanna, you know, uh you know, talk about Tyler Perry too much, but I mean that's one of the themes in his work is vengeance. I mean, you have these women getting revenge on men who have either cheated on them or men who are beating them and the like. That's their form of justice, all right? You don't go through the, the legal you know, means, you don't go through the family course, criminal course or what have you. You know, you, uh, you throw hot grits on the man, um, you know, while the man is taking a bath, you, you throw a, 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 a radio uh, inside the oh tub, you know yeah. what I mean? You know, that yeah. sort of thing, you know? So it's, it's a, it's normalized, you know, and you know, my, my dear, she's the religious figure, you know what I'm saying? So, so, in other, so in other words, the this vengeance is sanctioned by religion, okay? Yes. And and then when you think about it, I mean, vengeance is a theme that you find in religious texts, you find in the Old Testament in particular, you know, and so, um, you know, it's, it's a kind of justice that, um, you know, is, is passed down, you know, from generation to gen generation, and it, and it goes, it goes uncritiqued, and you're absolutely you're absolutely correct. I mean, if if a man uh, were to behave in this fashion or to you know put out images like that, you know, people would go crazy. You know? What uh, what I'm trying to remember the name of the young woman in um, oh goodness, I was trying to take it back uh, to the the show two two seven because I can't remember Regina King. Mm -hmm. Regina King was in a film, and some of you guys in the comment section may remember. She played a wife, and her husband was 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 cheating on her. And you know this this notion of revenge as empowerment played out where she he was in the shower, and she put put oil all over the bathroom floor, and she got a belt. And when he got out of the shower, you know he's slipping all over the oil, and she's she's striking him with this belt, like you know whipping him with this belt and and then she drove like his SA SUV off a little you know embankment or cliff or something like that but all of these notions of revenge as empowerment mm -hmm. as being acceptable and I know somebody in the comments will probably remember the name of the film it was like a Christmas film um where she was you know one of the siblings and and her husband actually it was so far gone her husband demanded that she cut up his food and feed him at the table where the family is gathering. So just really highlighting how bad of a person he is. And, you know, and so I think from there we get to this and Gigi, I want you to, to weigh in on this as well, but let me, you know, you may have seen this. I'm going to play it, but um, let me get the audio in here as well. Let's see if this works. Um, you guys may be familiar with this. But this is something I posted on my page a while ago. Can you guys hear that? Hmm. All right. Were you able to see that or hear it? Yeah. Yeah. The, the, now, how common this behavior is, and how how it's received as um, you know, this is just commonplace. This is you know, it is what it is. This is how we get down. But at the same time, this being championed as some kind of example of empowerment, 
uh, on behalf of women. And of course, the subtext being, as I hear many say, well, he must have done some, done something done something wrong enough to deserve that. It's an assumption that we that I hear people make, men and women, for that matter. Right? What are your thoughts about that kind of dynamic? Yeah. So, so what you see there is a uh, you know a woman who uh, basically feels like she has a free fire zone to attack a man, and you can, as you can see, the man is not really putting forth any effort to mm-hmm. defend himself the way he would a man. Right. Uh, you know, because if he were to defend himself the way that he would with a man, you know, he might be swinging and punching and, and looking for blood. So, I mean, you know, uh, this is a situation in which, you know, the man is showing some restraint. That's what I see, mm-hmm. you know, whereas she's showing no restraint, mm-hmm. none whatsoever. Mm-hmm. But. OK, I think we might have lost you, Gigi. You lost yeah, I couldn't hear you. Okay, well, uh, so so ultimately, what I was saying is that, uh, or what I was on my way to saying, is that it looks like to me a woman who is being aggressive with a man, physically aggressive, physically violent with a man, and a man showing restraint and not going at that woman as if she were a man. Mm-hmm. He's showing some sort of restraint. Because I, you know, I know what a fight looks like between a man and a man, mm-hmm. and it doesn't look like that. <laughs> you get what I'm saying? That's that's not what I take from that. Mm-hmm. I see a man being assaulted by a woman and the man trying to show restraint. But see, here here's the thing, and this is what people don't know: that the vast majority of relationships that people have are nonviolent. Right? <laughs> like I, I, I think somewhere in the in the in the range of like. 75 to 80% of relationships are nonviolent. Mm-hmm. And maybe 24% of them are violent. Okay. And mm-hmm. in the vast majority of cases where there is violence, the violence is reciprocal. Yes. M- meaning, and it escalates. So, what mm-hmm. does that mean? And I, I continue to try to articulate this idea. So, the popular notion of a woman being subjected to domestic violence is some weak, cowardly, meek and humble little lady being assaulted or accosted by some vicious man, right? Mm-hmm. Who's just, you know, wearing a wife beater, smoking a cigarette, drinking a beer, throws the beer across the kitchen and slaps the woman, you know, in, into a corner. And she, you know, she can't hurt, you know, she can barely defend herself. Mm-hmm. That's not what happens in the vast majority of cases of domestic violence. What mm-hmm. ends up happening is somebody shouts at somebody or curses somebody, then there's exchanges of curse words. And there's a push, and then somebody gets pushed back. Then there's a slap, and then somebody gets slapped back. Then there's mm-hmm. a punch, and then somebody gets punched back. Because the natural response to violence is violence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, this culture is working to do its best to try to mitigate harm to women, but it's not focused on any kind of harm whatsoever being uh, exacted or enacted upon men. But at the end of the day, if people in this country or in the Western world are serious about mitigating the problem of domestic violence or violence against women, it's Mm -hmm. also gonna have to take measures and steps 
in order to try to prevent violence by women because it is scientifically demonstrated, socially scientifically demonstrated that the highest predictor of a woman being subjected to violence is her commission of an act of violence. Mm. Now, and what I'm referring to uh, is a 2007 study uh, from uh, Harvard, uh, and the name of that article is called. Uh, let me look at look that up right right fast, just so I'm making sure um, that I'm making the right reference. So yeah, so it's it's an article called "Differences in Frequency of Violence and Reported Injury, Injury Between Relationships with Reciprocal and Non-Reciprocal Intimate Partner Violence." So so. What they want to do here is, is explore right, the frequency of violence in situations in which there's one-sided violence and there's this reciprocal kind of violence that I already mentioned. Mm -hmm. right? and, but the most shocking uh, finding, uh, and, and the article was published by a person named Whitaker, uh, Alicia's Swan, and Saltzman. Okay, mm -hmm. so, so and I, I'll leave you uh, a copy, a PDF copy of this. So, cool. you know, anytime you want to peruse the document, you can. But one of the most shocking uh, findings is that in cases in which the violence is one-sided, meaning non-reciprocal, 70% mm -hmm. right? of the perpetrators of non-reciprocal violence were women. Wow. Right? So when the violence is one-sided, women are the perpetrators 70% of the time. Mm -hmm. And men were more likely to be injured in reciprocally violent relationships, mm -hmm. right? More so than women who are subjected to violence in one-sided relationships. So ultimately what that's bearing out, the implication here is this. When women and men are fighting each other, there's more harm being caused through that exchange than through one-sided violence on either end, right? So what we're gonna have to do is teach both men and women to keep their hands to themselves and to find a means by which to practice conflict resolution. Mm -hmm. But we don't wanna talk about that. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is how to stop male dominance and to bash the patriarchy. No, I mean, that's, that's what the, the conversation has been boiled down to, right? Mm -hmm. and, and to me, it's absolutely nonsensical and idiotic to be thinking in this kind of way as we stand on, you know, we're, we're, not, we're almost a quarter through the 21st century. Mm -hmm. We have a whole host of methodologies and, and social scientific practices that can help us to mitigate a whole host of pathology. Mm -hmm. Right as it comes as it as it boils down to behavior, but we're not utilizing any of it. Right, we're not doing that. We're approaching this problem as a political problem, as opposed to a health problem. Mm -hmm. And until you know we we work on both sides of the equation, and I mentioned this earlier. To me, what this is tantamount to, right, the refusal to incorporate and to absorb this information, is tantamount to going to a dentist, and you're going there for a cavity and the dentist only drills out part of the cavity and right. he caps it. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, after having capped the tooth, being befuddled and shocked by the reappearance of pathology in the patient. 
Well, that's because you only took off one part of the cavity. You right. have to take into consideration the entirety of the phenomena. Mm -hmm. and we, but I think the predominantly, and, and so the person who, who first started the domestic violence shelter movement or the battered women's sheltered movement, her name was Erin Pist, okay? Mm -hmm. That woman, uh, a, a UK woman, she already knew prior to even opening up this shelter that she did that half or part of the problem were the women. I mean, in her estimation, over 60% of the women who were there in her shelters were violent themselves. And, right. and she knew very well about mm -hmm. the phenomena because her mother was violent. Yeah. I think you can actually find her talking about that on YouTube. Because yeah. I remember her talking about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she has a whole host of videos that uh, detail this uh, you know, this fact. But mm -hmm. what she argues is, so she started this movement, but increasingly, feminists began to hijack and co-opt it. Mm -hmm. And to be perfectly honest, this is an industry now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So if you have an industry and there's like tons and tons, I mean, billions of dollars being siphoned off into it, mm -hmm policies being created on yeah so so you know like i'm a social and political philosopher one of the things that i know about bureaucracy see so bureaucracies are top-down institutions uh and what i mean by that is they're hierarchical institutions governed by experts yeah. right mm -hmm. and so legislators allocate funds and resources and the construction of these bureaucracies but they're not managed in a democratic fashion. They're managed from a top in a top-down way. And they mm -hmm. don't absorb the interest and the needs, and they, they, they're not quick to adapt. The hardest thing to do is to deconstruct the bureaucracy. Mm -hmm. it's, e it's easy to deconstruct a law. I mean, because you got a body of legislators there who can talk about it and argue about it. And once you set up a bureaucracy, it becomes damn near impossible to take it down. Right? Mm -hmm. so, because it's a self-sustaining kind of uh, institution. Mm -hmm. So men are going to have to begin to, uh, you know, have their own uh, public awareness campaigns about this issue. Because if women are not going to uh, do anything more than double down on what they've been taught. I mean, and they have to know. They have to know. If they're half of the problem, they know that they're part of this problem. There's no way that you can convince me that these women don't know that they're doing something that is morally improprietous in the home. You can't tell me that, mm -hmm. but they're not being held accountable for it. Mm -hmm. This goes back to like a video I made about the ring of Gaijis. You know, absolute power corrupts absolutely. So if you have a whole host of institutions and bureaucracies and public awareness campaigns, and you have an entire political philosophy that's sustained in the academy and that's absorbed into politics, why not utilize that power? Mm. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. but, but, but the problem with it is, is it's not mitigating the problem at all. I don't think women want to be hurt. I don't think they want to. And if they don't want to, I think that they need to seriously take into account the social scientific research and work with men who want to work on the problem predicated upon reality and not political ideology. That's just mm -hmm. my point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, 
And, and as you guys can see, you know, this is a, I think this is, there might be some overlap between the data sets you mentioned and, and, and the ones that went into this particular image, but you can see, you know, in this dynamic, the majority of relationships are, as you said, nonviolent, right? Violent relationships constitute, you know, uh, 16% of relationships. And, and the majority of that, almost 60% are bi-directional. And of that, relationships that have unidirectional violence, 42%, uh, you know, 28% of that 42% is per perpetrated by women. Now, the reason that I bring up all of these issues, particularly in the black community, is because of something that uh, attorney Dennis Sperling said in the very first interview I did with him a couple of months ago. And he talked about the way police are used often to control black men in the household as a, pun a punitive measure, as a way. And he talked about how it happened in his own life, even with his mother. So we're not just talking about um, husbands and wives, boyfriends and girlfriends. He was saying even in terms of his mother, uh, it was a matter of, you know, it, it, it initiating and instilling uh, a controlling mechanism by using the state to do so. So when we talk about, you know, when you hear people talk about repairing the relationships between black men and women, we kind of we kind of keep it in this romantic, you know, utopian kind of idea of us relearning how to hold hands and, and just forgive each other. But what we don't often talk about is one of the main issues that black men have is the use of the state in, re in relation to our dynamics with our women, whether it be father, daughter, whether it be husband, wife, boyfriend and girlfriend, you know, whatever the dynamic is, the role the state plays in complicating that relationship and often deferring to women, uh, allowing them to be able to use the state on their behalf. We're talking about a degree of proxy violence that works against men in some very problematic ways. And as long as we can't bring that dimension of it into the discussion because it impacts black men in so many different ways, I don't think that the, the dialogues that we have really can get at the heart of many of the issues that black men have. Yeah, and I would, um, I would add that, you know, on our part, we really have to criticize the state, okay? Mm -hmm. um, I think that we need to really look at seriously because what happens, what, what has happened actually is that the state has worked to destabilize black families, mm -hmm. uh, households, it has destabilized black communities. Mm -hmm. You know, when you think about it, so what happens if you have a man um, who comes home from work and there is tension in the household and, um, there, you know, argument ensues and let's say something physical happens and the, the police come in, all right? He gets, he gets arrested, he's taken down or what have you, he gets charged, all right? He could possibly lose his job, all right? Lose his job, if he's the main breadwinner, you know, the entire household is, is um, you know, disrupted as a, as a consequence of that. Now think about what, what happens when, when you multiply that, you know, 10, 10 times, 20 times, 30 times, okay? Um, when these type of the domestic dis disputes result in a man who was unable to get any type of employment, who was unable to um, support his children uh, or his household in any type of fashion, you know? And so I think what, what, and what happens is that the state benefits um, in, in, in the long run, um, you know, from that, the, those who, the, 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 the police, the police officers, uh, the social workers, uh, the, the people in the domestic violence uh, shelters, 
all those folks who, who receive funding from the state <laughs> uh, and the state receiving funding from the federal government to handle these sort of situations okay so 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 we are we are at the losing end of it and what we have to do is is that we have to find a way i don't know how this is going to you know happen but you know training men and women to see the the detrimental role of the state in mediating conflict in our households all right we have to advocate if for not no government in our household we need less government okay and so we we, we need to you know to, to 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 really deal with this idea that we have to you know deal with conflict resolution without calling the police uh conflict resolution beyond you know family courts uh and, and the like i mean because when you think about it at the end of the day you know what you have a two two adult people, a man and a woman who are standing before who? You know, nine times out of ten, a white judge, it could be a white male judge, deciding the fate of an entire household. You know what I mean? And so I, I, I think that, that in terms of advocacy uh, and, and, and politics, um, the state really has to be, has, has to be attacked. We have too much state mm -hmm. intervention in our affairs. And, and, and as long as that remains the case, you know, this family situation is going to continue to erode and, and the tension will continue to, uh, you know, to, to exist. And absolutely, you know, but, but the other dimension to that, though, you know, and I do agree with you entirely. I think that the state needs to be on the table in terms of our analysis, our critique, any idea about solutions that we come to that has to be primarily uh, put for, you know, front and center. But we also have to look at what happens over generations mm -hmm. when entitled by the state in regard to what kind of behavioral patterns we begin to develop, you know what I mean? You know, that, that's, that becomes a whole nother dimension to it because, you know, it, it, it becomes the state, but the entitlement we develop becomes its own separate thing. And, and I think over the last couple of years, as we started to see conservatives like Trump removing certain aspects of state support that, that many of us, some of us have grown comfortable with, mm -hmm. even if it was based in necessity. When you started to see those things being removed from the table, when you started to see, um, even during COVID, right, the, the kinds of support that, that people got used to, when those things got removed, the entitlement remained, even though the mechanisms that, that produced it began to erode. Mm -hmm. And those are still on the table as things that complicate relationships between black men and women. And I think that they need to be called out, but we're not allowed to call that out. We're not allowed to say that in, in respectable dialogue and be taken seriously. You know what I mean? um, so any responses? And I think that, that the entitlement part, that's a, you know, that's a big one to overcome. You know, I, I think because it's been inculcated over generations. All right. Um, and, I, you know, you, we're talking about, again, socialization and the like. That's going to take some time to, to overcome, um, whereas the state mechanisms, you know, um, you know, once that's gone, that's just gone. You know, mm -hmm. and think about it. You know, so if Trump um, is reelected again, um, that's going mm -hmm. to have, you know, you know, deleterious uh, consequences for the people in the domestic violence industry. OK, because Republicans uh, consistently they vote against um, the Violent Against Women's Act. They they are adamantly opposed to funding it because 
you know, in the Senate and in Congress, um, you know, the idea is that, listen, uh, you know, the, the putting money towards domestic violence over the last uh, 30 some odd years has not reduced the problem. And you've got conservative people who want to see results. They want to see outcomes. And they and, and, and from their perspective, this is just a waste of money. We can use this money for something else. So if you have another Trump administration uh, and even if um, conservatives continue to rule for another one or two administrations in the future, um, it is highly likely that a lot of this stuff is going to go away. And so if, if that if that is the scenario that we're looking at, um, um, then, you know, uh, you know, whatever whatever remains in terms of people's out outlooks or, or attitudes or what have you. They're just going to have to evolve out of it, you know, uh, or just a new generation will emerge without, you know, having that type of expectation that they can just call on the state wantonly just to, to solve all their problems. Mm. You know, you know, what's you know, what's funny about that, you know, uh, Brother Neil, yeah. uh, you know, like a long time ago, it had to be about two months ago where you posted something on your uh, Facebook page and I, I retorted. Uh, about uh, this preoccupation, this this seeming fascination that a lot of these women have with Joe Biden, uh, and it doesn't matter what Joe Biden does. I mean, Joe Biden could be as freaky as he wants to be. I mean, Joe Biden could be that guy who visited that island that mm -hmm. manipulated and that molested little girls. They don't care mm -hmm. right, about what that man particular in particular has done. What they care about is what he supports and endorses in relation to legislation and policy. And being that he is the primary architect of the Violence Against Women's Act, mm -hmm. they're going to push for his reelection. Yeah. But that's the unavowed, the unspoken. So you don't see this on Facebook threads because they don't want to talk about it and put it out. There, no. right? But that's the true, that's the true nature of this because he has woman friendly policies. Mm -hmm. And um, and often these policies were presented for men in terms of pr protecting women. That's the way that some men feel like they're protecting women. Mm -hmm. uh, and because most vi most relationships are not violent, there are a lot of people who have a problem with understanding the true nature of the subject matter of domestic violence. It's all shrouded in mystery because the reality, the facticity of how it actually happens is not coming to the fore in mm -hmm. movies, in books, and in, in uh, academic literature uh, on the feminist side of things. Mm -hmm. So, so and, and pretty much they own the political landscape right now. Mm -hmm. I mean, so you're not getting a healthy dose of reality. What you're getting is a whole dose of half truths, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. So, but what I would like to see happen is, well, increasingly is for men to actually come forward and tell their stories. Mm -hmm. And I think that one thing that we can begin to do, I mean, we're scholars, Mm -hmm. We need to put together a book, man, with a list of stories from men who've been subjected to abuse. Mm -hmm. 10, 15 stories about men who've just been through abuse and what their experiences have been. They can put it down in audio and then, you know, we can transcribe it and put it out there so people can know this has a psychological, mm -hmm. it has uh, an emotional, and it has a financial and God knows a spiritual impact on men. Mm. And, and, and this is why all of you all's work is just so important because, you know, 
Men are vulnerable, but we don't like to admit that we are. We go through hardships, but we do so in isolation. It's time to stop that, right? We gotta, we gotta start looking out for each other. And it's not that we're looking out for each other in, in order to oppress or to stymie the, the, uh, the emergence of women into the social and political sphere. It's there, it, there is a such thing as mutual growth. <laughs> you know, it doesn't have to be a unilateral growth. Be a mutual growth amongst both of us, men and women, right? But we have to confront the realities instead of you know just being mired and hunkered down in, in into the facade of of justice. It, it ain't just if it's just us. It's got to be justice for everybody because a threat to injustice anywhere is a threat to. I know it's clichéish, but a, a, you know a threat to justice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Hmm. And if there's injustices happening to men, it's going to happen to women. So we need to work on that. We need to work on that. Man. I see and that. I also, I also think that you know there's also something going on in the culture where you have so you do have men who are now you know slowly but you know surely sharing their stories and you know putting their pictures up and and and, and doing videos, which is a good thing. It's kind of like. I kind of, you know, connected to the young men who we've seen over the last 10 years who have been telling this story of sexual abuse um, by, you know, by men and women. And so something has happened um, within the culture um, where you do have this phenomenon of men, you know, um, you know, beginning to speak and to talk about the abuse and the pain and, uh, and what they've gone through. And I suspect that that's going to uh, increase as time goes by, because um, because one of the things that's happening, um, and and I, I and I thought about something that uh, uh, Green Gorilla said earlier, is that you know um, if we don't if we don't find a way to coexist, um, you know our future is bleak. Okay, and um, and I, I have to agree with with that sentiment. And, and here's the thing, something to, to really think about as, as we've been having this conversation. So women have become more masculinized, okay? At a variety of levels, all right? Um, from, you know, the lower socioeconomic classes. So that video that you showed with that young woman hitting on that young man, I mean, that's a, that's a, hood, that's a hood narrative, okay? So we're talking about the socioeconomic, lower socioeconomic class. You know, and, and, and as you go up gradually, um, the ranks, you know, women are becoming more masculinized, taking on the roles of men, okay? And, and as long as that continues to happen, things have to flatten, things have to flatten out. You have to make some type of negotiation because what's going to happen is that men um, ultimately will um, lose uh, that sense of sensitivity They'll become desensitized to the gender of women, and, and and what you will see as just as you know, men are coming out telling their stories of, of abuse and uh, and you know being harmed by women. You will see men who will just totally abandon the the chival the chivalrous script altogether. Okay, um, which will create, you know, um, you know, not a, a situation that's not going to look good. So, so what I'm what I'm getting at is that um, there's something happening in the in, in the environment that we have no control over, 
okay? And and what it's going to do is it's going to force, uh, if we can't do it as a, as a, you know, in terms of a you know political movement and what have you, I think that nature, um, the environment is going to correct things, um, you know, itself, you know, and and um, and it may not look pretty uh, mm-hmm. as it happens, but I, I do see that that sort of thing happening, um, you know, as as we as we move forward. So I'm not, I'm not, um, I'm not pessimistic, you know, about things because we have the two, and again, we have all this social media and, and technology and the like. And these narratives are, um, you know, they're being that they're being put out there, and, and the idea of female innocence, okay, is being, you know, contested in many ways, okay. You know, I, I had an interesting conversation with some feminists earlier this summer, um, where we got into the discussion about uh, domestic violence and bidirectionality, okay. And, uh, and and I got into a you know a very heated conversation with this one feminist who, um, you know, five six years ago, she would have never entertained the, the notion of bidirectionality. But right. when I talked about bidirectionality, she was like, "Well, yeah, it happens." She conceded it happens, but it you know it, it doesn't happen. You know, being hit by women doesn't happen as much as yeah. you know um, uh, women uh, being hit by men. Right. Right. And so, so this was someone, you know, five, six years ago, she would have never conceded that. So mm-hmm. something is happening. Something is shifting. Well, um, yeah. and, and you know what? It's not even shift. It's not just shifting with, with men. It's also shifting with women. I'm sure you guys uh, have, have seen this, uh, right? Taraji P. Henson on why the strong black woman identity damages us right now. Now, if we remember Taraji, that's that's her go-to character, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. You see her in, in you know, I, you can name in last the last few movies that she's been in. Uh, the names escape me at the moment. Her character is always the the you know hard-driving, ambitious, you know, character who who doesn't need a man and all of that kind of narrative. But she's coming forth with this. So when we talk about abandoning, you know, these kind of ideas. It's it, not only are men questioning it, but women themselves are questioning it. But but there's not always opportunity to talk across the table and be heard. Uh, mainly, because, and this is the thing I, that gets me because I hear people talk about, well, you know, the men in this sector on YouTube or on Facebook, they're just angry. They're just the mirror image of the, of, of the feminists that they hate, you know. And I look at it like, well, no, we've had fifty odd years of feminism let alone feminism broadcast on mainstream media. And we've had a couple of years of brothers in social media talking to one another. How does my post on Facebook with a hundred comments compare to, you know, the, 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 the film industry that produced waiting to exhale and, and all the, all the way up to girls trip. Like how do those two, how are those comparable? We've really not heard black men speaking on their issues on any major platform, really outside of maybe hip hop. You know, but even then, it's not like hip hop offers a lot of opportunity for nuance. So, you know, so you just have instances in hip hop and maybe comedy where you hear individuals speaking on different events, but it's not really been a widespread platform to discuss the nuances and the history and the narratives and the data around our experiences. Look, let me let me just say this. 
and I think Ronald Neal is right about this. I think you're right about this also, uh, Dr. Johnson. Look, uh, look, as women rise and come up to power, increasingly they're going to be scrutinized. And more and more and more, and, and especially since we have, you know, these technologies now that allow us to see things in real time. We, I mean, it, it allows us to see women behaving bad, Okay. They're going to have to be held accountable. There's no way you can hold public offices, being the head of corporations, and then your historical records and all the things that you've ever done. They, they don't get scrutinized. You're going. They're going to increasingly become scrutinized, right? Mm -hmm. And they're not going to be perceived as being the perfect little damsels that they once were, right? And all of this is, is a relatively recent phenomenon because even in Western culture, there have been means and methods by which women were seen to be imperfect creatures. <laughs> but I mean, you know, but right now we're in the nascent stages of the antithesis to the thesis set forth by feminism. Mm -hmm. and so, you know, you see brothers like Tommy Curry and yourself and Brother Neil, you know, breaking and kicking down the doors in the manosphere. Oh, we lost you again, Gigi. But all okay. I'm saying is. We lost you again just for the last 10, 15 seconds. So what I'm saying is, is that increasingly as women become more and more visible and they hold political offices, they run corporations, their backgrounds are going to be scrutinized more and more. Mm -hmm. And they're not going to be able to be perceived as these innocent little creatures, they're going to have to be perceived as human beings with the same kind of characters and, and their capacity to err in their behavior as men. Mm -hmm. And so they're going to be, there's no way that a woman can be the president of the United States and that she can't be scrutinized or a vice president or, or you know, whatever the case may be. You know, I mean, if this woman is running a, a school or the head of any organization, she's going to be held up to scrutiny. There's no way. We just gonna have women just gonna, are gonna have to just get used to it. And and in one of my videos, you know, right now what women are doing, in, in my viewpoint, is they're teetering and tottering on accountability because they want the they want the power of men, but they want the privileges of women, and they're not accepting the responsibilities associated with either role wholeheartedly. That can't sustain itself in, into perpetuity. It just cannot. You see what I'm saying? Because you can't say, well, I'm a man or I'm performing or acting in the world as a man with the same kind of responsibility without any accountability at all. And then on the other hand, you can't accept the, that you want or you can't ask for the privileges of a woman, but then you don't perform any of the duties or the roles associated traditionally with what women do. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's why it befuddles me to hear so many women talk about they're not being protected. It's like, well... Protection comes at a cost. I mean, you did a whole video on this, I think, right? Like, okay, yeah. if women want to be protected, then there's a certain set of functions and duties that they have to perform in order to pay for that protection because human beings act on the principle of reciprocity. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's what they do. Mm -hmm. I mean, you, you do something for me, I do something for you. I do something for you, you do something for me. And the, the cycle goes on and on and on until somebody defects and then the other person defects it's tit for tat that's how this goes i mean they game theorists have studied this mm -hmm. <laughs> you know i don't know if you know anything about game theory but uh 
it's you know the, the study of games and how people behave and how they act based upon rational choice theory mm. and uh you know the, the evolutionary biologists have taken up this tack as well but you know the, the whole notion is is that in nature reciprocity is the key i mm. mean we talk about conflict a whole hell of a lot but we don't talk about the cooperative nature uh, of human beings or, or other animals for that matter and what right. they do in terms of strategies in order to to thrive and to keep peace because we, if there's no internal peace there is no productivity right so how do they how do animal species create productivity where well, they use reciprocities games i mean like it's tit for tat and they give but there has to be reconciliation in order in order to proceed you know with the relationship after you know there's been a defection in it. and so like mm -hmm. right, we just don't know how to reconcile we don't even know how to admit wrongdoing uh we need to come to some sort of resolution and at some point i think we will but you know as long as there's this 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 oscillation this this kind of i want want it all but i don't want to put anything into the pot that's not yeah. sustainable it, it's, it's it's not sustainable well yeah and we have to move past the point where critique is considered uh hatred you know it, it, we, we have to get to that point when it comes to being able to critique women in public uh, and that's obviously something that many don't want to give up, but it's necessary in order for us to do this. But let me get uh, closing thoughts uh, from each of you in regard to the to the subject and, and how you've approached it. Um, uh, we got 131 in the building. Please make sure that you've liked, shared, subscribed, uh, if you will. And we'll go ahead and start uh, with Dr. Neal. Uh, some closing thoughts. Yeah, I um I just think that we have a lot of work to do, particularly with men in terms of, you know, deprogramming, you know, um dealing with the way in which black men have been socialized to, you know, accept um the kind of abuse that um they have suffered, they suffer uh in these relationships, these toxic relationships. Um, you know, and and, and I mean that that's going to take, you know, a, a great deal of work given the extent to which, um, you know, women are venerated, you know, among black people and how women, you know, function as, you know, infallible entities um, and that we are to, you know, strenuously, <laughs> you know, uh, take on um, whatever pain and uh, punishment that women inflict uh, upon us. And so I think that's, that's the major the major task that we have was kind of deprogramming and help, helping our brothers um, have a different type of mindset um, on these matters. Mm -hmm. Okay. Gigi? Oh, uh, yeah. I'm just, I, I, I muted the conversation so I wouldn't have any uh, noise going on in the background while he was talking. But I mean, ultimately, men need to understand that they are also human beings and that they're vulnerable. And all of the stuff he, you say at the end of your broadcast is what men need to take away from this conversation that men aren't tools to be used we are human beings and we are endowed with dignity whether you you perceive that dignity as being bestowed upon you because of the religious tradition that you practice whether you ground it philosophically you know but the whole point is you are a human being and you deserve to be treated with respect. You have innate dignity. And when you're being subjected to harm, it's not your fault. And you do not have to endure it. And it's unjust for you to have to endure it, even if the culture and society tells you that you're supposed to endure it. 
-hmm. You don't have to, you should not have to, and it's unjust if you have been subjected to this kind of behavior. And we are human beings. We're not perfect. We're not impervious to harm. Something can happen to any one of us at the hands of another human being. Mm. And we need to keep that in mind. And we don't have to, you know, we don't have to, to man up to the point where we feel like we have to endure abuse. It's unacceptable. It's, it's, it's not required. And I agree it's necessary that we have to find new ways to come forward. Um, and I think uh, it, it's, it's definitely time to do that. But I want to thank both of you all, both of y'all for coming on to the show. I uh, appreciate that. I know both of you have plenty, plenty else to do on a Friday night. So uh, so thank you. And I appreciate the all guests, right. everybody who's contributed. And y'all know how I like to close out. Um, as uh, Brother Gigi was just referring to, um, brothers, we are not criminals by birth perennial rapists, incapable intellects, man children, sperm donors, child support wellsprings, success objects, walking phalluses, ATM machines, lottery tickets, brainless henchmen, valueless assassins, pro bono mercenaries, unpaid bodyguards, interchangeable stepfathers, child discipline proxies, unpaid repairmen, workhorses, or any other socially accepted dehumanizing stereotype. We are thinkers, inventors, innovators, leaders, fathers, warriors, and men. Embrace your humanity, know your worth, and extend your time, attention, and resources only to those who genuinely respect you. And remember, your worth is not defined by meeting other people's narcissistic, selfish, and unrealistic needs. You define your worth. Peace. Peace. Hold on. Trying to get this thing working. I'm always having some problems trying to shut it out. <laughs>